Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Georgia's new Labor Commissioner Bruce Thompson has made it clear, even when he was a candidate, that he wanted to fix what he calls a broken agency. Well, now just a couple of months into leading the department, Commissioner Thompson joins me in studio. Plus, Florida has rejected the inclusion of AP African-American classes, and now Virginia is considering doing the same. It'll be works of scholars crafting the curriculum versus what some say is political influence. We'll talk about all of that. And the city of Atlanta wants to highlight its LGBTQ history with the help of college students. Now, all that's just ahead, but we'll begin with some news from the state legislature. Efforts to get a vote regarding the city of Buckhead passed a committee hearing today. There are two bills, Senate Bills 113 and 114. Republican Senator Randy Robertson sponsored the measures. He told the committee before the vote, the bills are just following a process that's always occurred in the General Assembly. This is just basically establishing the municipal corporation for uh, an existing municipality to be incorporated. and basically uh, dealing with the city of the proposed city of Buckhead. And again, um, this is all, all we're asking for is equity uh, based on the way this process has been conducted in Georgia from the 1950s on to what we heard about the de-annexation of Eagles Landing and the de-annexation of Villarica, Georgia, also back in the 80s. And I encourage the uh, committee's support of this legislation. Now, before the vote on Senate Bill 113, Democratic State Senator Jason Estevez addressed the committee. What is happening today is that my constituents are being forced to eat a half-baked pie. We talk about the plans that have been in place and years of planning in the making, uh, but it is clear that the proponents of this bill uh, have no plan for the debt obligations that currently exist with the city of Atlanta. They have no plan for the 8,000 children that are in Atlanta public schools in the North Atlanta cluster, 5,000 of whom would be in limbo, uh, because this bill, according to our own attorneys, does not address Atlanta public schools. The vote fell upon party lines. In other legislative news, a bipartisan bill that would reform the Georgia's mental health system is moving through the state capitol. Another hearing on the bill set for the House Public Health Committee. It would create new incentives designed to grow the state's provider workforce for mental health and substance abuse. Democratic Representative Shelley Hutchison is backing the measure. I know what mental health patients go through, both emotionally and the challenges that they have getting services in Georgia and treatment and medication because it's far too hard in Georgia for mental health clients to get those services. Far too difficult. The bill is intended to build on last session's Mental Health Parity Act. That law requires health insurance plans to cover mental health conditions equally with physical ones. And finally, the Atlanta Hawks have hired Quinn Snyder as head coach. A lot of you Duke fans are probably happy about that because he went to Duke after firing Nate McMillan. Snyder inked a five-year deal with the Hawks, who have underwhelmed in eighth place in the East so far this season. Now, Snyder was an assistant for the Hawks way back in the 2013 season before becoming head coach of the Utah Jazz, where he led the team to the playoffs for the last six seasons. Meantime, Atlanta has won two straight games, yes, since firing McMillan, including last night's 129-127 to win over Brooklyn. Of course, a buzzer beater from who else? Trey Young. Five seconds, he comes over the top line at four. Trey looking to drive. Game time. Shoots. Hits it! Despite a rear contest from Spencer Dinwiddie, Trey Young hits the game winner. 
Just like I used to do. I'm just kidding. The Hawks next play at home against Washington tomorrow night. I was a legend on the playground, y'all. You're listening to Closer Look back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Here's what we know. Georgia's unemployment rate has steadily remained pretty low. Here's what we don't know, how a mild or hard-hitting recession will impact not only the nation's labor force, but, of course, Georgia's labor force. Now, add that to the regular operations of Georgia's Labor Department, plus an unexpected overhaul of or an expected overhaul of policies, procedures, and even a change in culture. Newly sworn in Georgia Labor Commissioner Bruce Thompson has a lot that he's going to be dealing with, and I'm going to ask him about it because he joins me now in studio. Commissioner, welcome. Hey, thank you so much for allowing me to join you today. Let's begin with this expected recession. I read something earlier today, and it may not be surprising to you, that says, look, with the recession, there are lower demands for goods and services. Firms start laying off workers. At the same time, you want to stop prices from raising. But do folks really understand? What do you want folks to know about the unemployment and how inflation how they intersect with each other. What should folks know? Sure. Well, Georgia is obviously a little bit of an anomaly in the United States right now because we have an economy that's roaring. And so it could be easy for people to think that we would not be impacted by inflation or um, the opportunities for an economic uh, recession like other states. But the truth of the matter is, if we're not careful, the Department of Labor seeks to serve those that are maybe underserved when it comes to the economic roar that we hear in the state of Georgia. It is true, we're the number one place in the country to do business and have been for nine plus years. But not everyone gets the opportunity to participate in that. Mm -hmm. There are individuals that need um, additional training. Maybe there is unlike we have a grant that's called the trade where you have industries that are relocating and they're left behind. So the Department of Labor is not just about taking someone that's unemployed and providing some resources to get them back on the feet. But it's about taking individuals that maybe have been incarcerated. They need to be re-entry back into um, the public sector and be able to get them uh, employed. Or maybe it's individuals that right now the opportunities don't exist for them and we, we evaluate them through a RESA grant to say, what do we need to do to make sure you get to participate? So you want to focus on making, or correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like you want to focus on making sure Georgians, whatever level they are, they have an opportunity to improve their skill set. And, and when what, whatever it's a recession or not, you want to make sure there are more programs for folks to improve their skill set, to maybe even to get into higher paying jobs. Is that what you're saying? Well, Rose, it's not just programs. We have grants that are out there, but the Department of Labor needs to make sure we're doing everything we can to engage those individuals and make them aware of that. Listen, we, we have a robust trade school in the, in the TCSG that's out there that's led by Commissioner Dozier. And there's a disconnect right now with individuals, whether it be coming out of high school and they don't want to go into college, mm-hmm. or they're coming from, um, frankly, a, a, an unfortunate situation at home, whatever sure. that might be, or prisons or whatever. We have a very large um, workforce right now that is either not participating or under-participating. And we want to make sure that they are participating in a roaring economy because if we don't fill those jobs, those companies are going elsewhere. Well, what about the responsibility or accountability for these jobs, these folks out there that may have some apprehensions about hiring someone because of, as you just mentioned, an unfortunate situation? You can't force somebody to hire a particular individual. Well, as as a capitalist that I am, I think the environment's taking care of that right now in some cases, and that you have so many unfilled positions. You hear about it everywhere. We're hiring, we're hiring, we're hiring, and thousands of jobs coming to Georgia. That frankly, they're going to have to change their practices mm-hmm. and reevaluate what their requirements to hire. What my heart is is not necessarily going there and saying, let's change your practices, unless, of course, 
maybe there's some practices that are discriminatory and we need to change that. It's making sure we're marrying up the opportunities and then preparing these people to be able to interview and get these jobs. I want to come back that to, come back to that in a moment, but I want to shift to what you all are needing to do internally because former Labor Commissioner Mark Butler, who was on this program many times, he always talked about, in fact, sometimes he screamed, infrastructure roles, technology. It's been, as I think he even put it one time, a mess. They had to overhaul that. They had to spend millions of dollars in terms of their IT department, where are you all now, just in the tech, from a technology standpoint, in your infrastructure? Because that was a big issue, the height of the pandemic, folks couldn't even get on the website, it kept crashing, or whatever have you. What's the latest on that? I know you've only been on the job a few months, I want to be fair. Oh, no, Did okay. you go in and start, you know, coding and fixing stuff? So, uh, well, the first thing we always do is you go in in any environment is you do some quick due diligence to see, rent, assess what really is the problem. Hey, the truth of the matter is we were in the number one place in the country for five years in a row prior to the pandemic in um, minimizing the, the duration that people were on unemployment. People missed that. So we were doing some things. People missed were, it because we were, I was told that it would, I mean, folks were waiting weeks and weeks. That and was weeks. during the pandemic. Okay. I'm saying before. All right. Um, but because my predecessor and whomever, right, were not preparing for crisis management, they, I mean, I'll just, I'll just say it what it was. We had $102 million that the feds provided to us that we let expire December 31st of 2022 that was designated so that we could modernize. Wait a minute. Because I'm going to get these emails, but I'm going to tell them and send it to you. That Bring it on. <laughs> $100 million just went back to Washington because Georgia... We did not encumber it which means you've got to be able to identify and then come under contract. We did not encumber that. We lost it. So where does this leave you and your department now? Uh, left me with a travel already to D.C. twice to beg our senators as well as our U.S. congressional delegation to consider extending that encumbrance period to allow us to be able to go and um, contract with the opportunity to modernize. Modernization is happening all over the country our system of which we provide benefits was built on a 1982 platform. Mm -hmm. It's one of the oldest in the country. And frankly, the IT department at DOL has done everything they can to try and make sure we prop it up and do what we can. It needs to be modernized. What does that mean if the recession hits, you have more folks that might be looking for you know, unemployment benefits? Is there going to be a backlog because of you don't have what you need well, to modernize the system, as you just put it? Certainly. Here's, it, it's a bit of a challenge. I mean, I had a meeting this morning to explain it. And again, knowledge is power, right? So we can give our assessments, but the real knowledge is this. Our system was built based around human capital. 1982 used humans to process a lot of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. In 2023, software changes that. We, we talked about that off air with chat GBT and all, so many things that well, are coming. Well, 1982, right? weren't we using those three and a half floppy disks? <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. That's right. COBOL and all the other, uh, Fortran, all the other languages. So our challenge is, is when a state modernizes, it takes 30 months is the quickest one's ever modernized once they start. So if we have a recession comes and we're in the middle of a modernization, we may not be ready until 2027. So there's some urgency to get started. Once we do that, we can be efficient and process claims quicker. But if we had a recession happen right now, unfortunately, people would be very unhappy at the process of which we could get the money to get them back on their feet and take care of them and their families. You have a good relationship with Governor Kemp. Can he float y'all alone or something? Or can you tell, did you talk to state lawmakers about this during the budget hearings? Did well, you tell them with what all, you just told me? With, with all due respect, again, knowledge is power. The governor doesn't float alone, right? That's taxpayer money, right? I understand right? that, but we got, listen, we got a whole lot of money. There's got to be a system in place. There's, listen, you know back in the Great Recession what happened, okay, and, and, and you had to dip into the coffers, okay, but if what you're saying is that because of there's a lack of money that you need for folks who might, mm -hmm. through no fault of their own, with this recession, might lose their jobs, so we have, we have two things going and, on. Right and, now. you know, landlords and mortgage companies and Georgia Power and electric, electric, electric companies and everybody else, they can't wait on them saying, well, you know, I'm waiting on my, my benefits. For some folks, this is no fault of theirs if they lose their job or they're unemployed for whether it's a month or six months. Part of part of it is the culture is dra dramatically changing it. 
DOL, if you were to come in, people are already com- commenting on how the culture's changed, that we have to we have to respond to people. We're in the people business. I keep telling my team, we're in a people business. If you understand that everyone you interact with is coming to you because it's an emergency room, mm-hmm. not a dentist office is scheduled. But funding, real quick, if we can talk about that. Yeah. Because that's important. There's two things that we have to understand. We are in an agency right now that is primarily funded by the federal government. Mm-hmm. Sue Wagner Pizer, right? And there's a lot of conversation about where Wagner Pizer resides. If it right, resides at the Department of Labor, and that would be foreign labor, where we make sure that we're inspecting the migrants' work environment and their housing so we don't have another blooming onion situation. Sure. It's WOTC where one of my passions is taking people that were incarcerated and making sure when they come out that they are be able to go back to work. Um, so that's the Fed side, and it's Wagner Pizer. Right now, there is some discussion about where that really resides. We feel like it should be at the Department of Labor. Mm-hmm. There's some discussion of maybe it being at TCSG. If you lose that, that's $100 million of, our, of money that funds us. At the state level, we had $6 million put in to address what you're talking about. The General Assembly has come back, and they've added another three because we have some facilities that need um, some maintenance and so on. So mm-hmm. we're looking at possibly $10 million from the state. But most of that comes from the Fed, from our budget. Does that also include any improvements for your local Department of Labor offices? I've we visited some. Some look pretty cool. Some are pretty, pretty rough. Out, yeah, pretty, yeah, that's a good way of putting. Pretty it. Pretty rough. So, so if we wind up as only being the proprietor of just unemployment benefits, which is called UI, mm-hmm. that's about fifty-five or sixty million dollars. It's not enough revenue for us to really be able to provide the services necessary and very little to make sure we maintain property. So we're working closely with the governor's office to make sure that whatever this looks like, we can provide the benefits and or services to the constituents of the state of Georgia. But that's yet to be decided. Well, meanwhile, you came on board as labor commissioner with also some folks doing some illegal things in your Mm -hmm. department. Um, Nearly 300 employees suspected of stealing almost what, $7 million in unemployment benefits during the pandemic? Sure. What's hey, happening with those folks? What's the late, What can you legally share? Sure. So when you have a pandemic, remember, the Department of Labor was processing roughly uh, 200,000 claims in a year. Sure. We went to $4 million in one month. Sure. So in fairness to the hardworking people that are there, it was a tidal wave. But there are fraudsters out there, and they knew how to exploit this, right? And that's one group of people, and we are working very close with IG GBI and all the authorities to prosecute those. On the other hand, we had misinformation. And what do we you had mean? we had individuals, some of which could be state employees and a whole lot of people that were possible residents of our state. They had two jobs, right? And one of those jobs they may have been laid off for. So they thought that they could draw unemployment on that that company or that they they were laid off from. Mm-hmm. And in the state of Georgia, you can't draw benefits on that if you're gainfully employed full-time and so they were paid benefit they applied for the benefits they may have not miss or may have misunderstood how to apply and we paid them they're now paying restitution back so they didn't intentionally do anything it was it was a glitch in the system well it was misinformation there they did not intentionally try to commit fraud versus we did have bad actors that did two different groups of people how do you replace if those 250 employees, if they are indeed guilty, how do you replace them? And were those folks, sounds like they were in some pretty critical positions as well. I mean, if they're handling the money or, or, or disbursement of the money, you know, you got you to fill those positions or have you already begun to do that? So that whole process um, with the collaboration of the attorney general and the IG and others, you have to first identify who were the bad actors and who were just unintentionally mm-hmm. took re- resources. Some of the unintentionals already paid restitution, and that was just an education piece. The rest of them, we can leave that up to the authorities how they're going to prosecute. But will you You will need to replace those people, though, right? You sure. are going to replace oh, them. Oh, sure. If, if, if individuals were true fraudsters, right, and they committed fraud, then they would no longer be employed. Um, remember, that's not just the Department of Labor. That would be other agencies and other state employees, and that would be left up to those in leadership to be able to replace them. You've been a part of the legislature. You know how all this works, but there are some bills that directly would affect your department. 
what are you concerned about with some of these measures? And have you spoken to these lawmakers? Is, are you in favor of them? There are, I think, three that are floating around here. Um, we'd have to talk about which one specifically, but we have so there's three of our own bills, there's too. There's the administrative assessment. That's from That's, us. Okay, so you like that one. Well, it's because it's coming from yeah. our agency. And the administrative assessment, it's been around for since the 80s. And what that does is, is it's a it's a, an assessment or a fee that's charged on the amount from the empl- employer that's paying in. So it doesn't raise the expense to the employer. It's just what's collected. There's a fee that's carved out to help fund us. And it sunsetted the end of last year because it wasn't reauthorized because my predecessor what, what's didn't What's the do fee that. for, again? Explain to Help for fund us. Okay. Right? It, as you know, any funds that come in go into the General Assembly. It can't be designated. But this is money that is set aside that then, if it is authorized to us, helps fund us. So not like, not necessarily just a carve-out, but it's, it's the state funding mechanism for us. Um, but if this bill doesn't pass... Right now, the employers would be paying higher on the rate tables mm-hmm. because that was a part of it as well. So we feel like it will pass. What have you been hearing from employers that perhaps they didn't like under your, your the previous commissioner? What are you hearing? You, you, you came in, you said the first thing I'm going to do is talk to people, yes, not ma'am. only just internally but externally. You know, we could talk all day about minimum wage, but I know that you, you can't necessarily do anything about that. But what are you hearing from employers? What are their issues here? Employers need workers, mm-hmm. right, to be able to – to do the services and provide the goods they need. They also, in the Department of Labor, they need a collaborative and cooperative relationship. That did not exist. We have done a lot of things already to make sure we're doing that. And so anytime we get someone that reaches out to us that have not been able, not been treated fairly, we immediately comes to my office and we have someone deployed to be able to take care of that. So we got to make sure we're here to serve people. We're not here to serve ourselves. I have a couple emails that really want Rose get back to modernizing modern, modernizing the department here. Listen, that $100 million, I knew when you said that, that was going to get a lot of emails coming in, and I've got a few right here. Sure. And here's a listener that says, look, what does this mean once this, we get into the recession? I need the commissioner to say whether or not folks will still have a backlog, be backlog to, in receiving their benefits that, that, they, that they earn, that they're owed to. Well, listen, it's hard for me to make a promise that we won't because yeah. if we don't modernize it, it's hard to process claims differently. But I will tell you this, the attitude of us there will be to make sure that we are taking care of people. So it won't be because of a lack of effort on it, but we need the software in place to make sure it's efficient and effective to be able to serve these people. Do you have enough staffing in your local department? Department of Labor agencies, are they, particularly in, in the rural areas, too. I've visited one in DeKalb these, County before. These career centers are not staffed the way that we need to staff them to serve the underserved. And many times, it's many, many of the people of which we serve are people of color or of less fortunate means. And but then there are some folks who just need a job, that, whether but, they're black or from but my point is, yeah. is you're in these rural areas where they don't have technology. They need to go to a career center to be served. And if we don't have the people there to serve them, they're underserved. So the answer to your question is, we're not appropriately staffed at this moment. So how do you, you know, back to funding. <laughs> back to funding. It's all back to funding. We had a $165 million budget with my predecessor. Right now, I am facing the possibility of a $60 million budget. What? We had a $165 million budget, if you were to look in the past. I am faced right now of the Department of Labor could have a budget of roughly $60 million. How does that happen, Commissioner? Well, we talked about the Wagner-Pizer. Right. Right. If that is not, if I'm not the proprietor of that. See, what people don't understand is unemployment, the UI, many of those employees are paid out of the other grants as well. I, I understand. If you take those grants away, I no longer have that funding, but I still have the responsibility of UI. Is this a, a Biden administration issue? Um, no, that was, was the decision that was made in our state with the ability to be able to um, provide Wagner-Pizer over somewhere else and direct it away from the Department of Labor. So we're in discussions right now of what the consequences might look like. I think we can get this resolved, but if, if this is not changed, this could be very problematic. For How us. much, what is your operating budget that comes from Georgia? That comes from the General Assembly, what they say the, you the should The governor had put $6 million. You can see that. It was appropriated. The House and Senate have come back and added $3 more million. Again, you know, the governor can sign that or not. So it, in essence, right now as we're moving, it's looking at $10 million from the state. 
our UI, which is based on claims from the previous year, mm -hmm. because we have a low unemployment, we get less money for our UI grant, unemployment grant, is roughly $55 million. The other grants like WOTC, mm -hmm. foreign labor, um, um, uh, our um, RISA grants, mm -hmm. all of those grants, if those do not stay with the Department of Labor, we're going to be faced with a $6 million budget to serve those people to answer the question of your email or your listener. It's going to be very problematic. I believe the governor's office will restore those back to us. I and mean, we're talking about what the consequences might be. And if that's the case, then we'll be appropriately ready for a recession. If not, it's going to be challenging. How do you as a leader, and I, again, I've said this 8,000 times, one of my favorite movies is Remember the Titans, where the young man says, attitude reflect leadership. Yes, ma'am. How do you lead? Uh, well, I'll tell you, day one, I started walking around and sticking my hand out to people and shaking their hand saying, my name's Bruce. And they said, we know who you are, Commissioner, and asked them what their name is. And then get in front of them with like a coffee on the commission with the commissioner, inviting everyone. Oh, you have in. a coffee with the commissioner. We do because I have a coffee conversation. Did and you, we did you and I take say, that from me. I may have stolen it from you, but you know you were you might have been the the champ on the playground, but I wrestled in college, so um, basketball player I'll always be the wrestler. Uh, you can't catch us. That. I don't know about that. If I get a hold of you, <laughs> <laughs> you gotta catch me first. That's that's true. That's true. Let's talk about leadership. Go but let's out. go back to leadership. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I said to them is, I listen. My role may be as commissioner and your role may be X. That doesn't make me any better or any worse than you are. It just means my responsibilities are different than yours. So as you hit campus, I want you to look someone in the eyes. I want you to smile at them and shake their hand if you can and let them know how valuable they are because it may be the last opportunity you ever get to. We learned that in the pandemic. That is changing culture rapidly. Finally, everything that we learned from the pandemic had to deal with equity, also had to deal with folks making sure that there's what we call diversity, equity, and inclusion, all of that mm -hmm. matters. How have you, or how are you planning to ensure that that happens within your, your own department here? Well, I'll tell you this, this morning we had a guest speaker come in for Black History Month, and uh, we had him out downstairs to speak to everyone. And it That's is, just one month though, what's gonna do but, next month? But, but hold on, I understand in 12 years from one of my leaders there, it's the first time in 12 years we've done that. We've got Asian uh, history. We have Hispanic history. The truth of the matter is we are a very diverse agency, mm -hmm. and I want to make sure we engage that and people understand your culture is what makes America what it is, and we want to engage that and work together as one. Everybody's in the boat together, so start rowing. Well, let us know when you get your money or if you don't get your money because that's going to be another Hey, listen, Governor Kemp has been a good governor for our yeah. state, and I, I believe as sitting down with him, we're going to be able to work together. You see these emails, folks upset. They want you to get your money. It's not my money. Well, it's their money we're taking in form well, of taxation. They want their money, yeah. They, they want to see us go to work, and we're ready to do that. Georgia Labor Commissioner Bruce Thompson, thank you for taking the time. Your first interview. Closer look. Good, bad. Awesome. Thanks for the privilege. Appreciate it. Thank you. Come back. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Students in 60 high schools across the nation are learning about a wide range of topics all related to African-American history. Now, it's part of the Advanced Placement Programs African-American Studies Pilot Course. They commonly refer to these as AP courses. Now, the curriculum has also landed right in the middle of a political war fueled by politicians such as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Here's Governor DeSantis earlier in the year. This course on black history, what are one of, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory. 
Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. And so when you look to see they have stuff about intersectionality, abolishing prisons, that's a political agenda. And so we're on, that's the wrong side of the line for Florida standards. We believe in teaching kids uh, facts and how to think, but we don't believe they should have an agenda imposed on them. When you try to use black history to shoehorn in queer theory, uh, you are clearly trying to use that uh, for political purposes. Hmm. Closer Look reached out to Governor DeSantis to be on the program, and no one got back to us. Now, he instructed the state's education department to reject the AP course, claiming it lacked educational value. Critics of the College Board, which administers the program, claim the not-for-profit organization gave in to political pressure and revised the African-American Studies program by excluding topics like Black Lives Matter, slavery reparations, and queer theory from queer theory from the curriculum. Dr. Robert Patterson is a professor for African-American Studies at Georgetown University. Now, he also is a co-chair of the Committee of Professors and Teachers who developed the AP African-American Studies course. He's also the author of Destructive Desires, Rhythm and Blues, Culture, and the Politics of Racial Equality, among other books, because I've read them. Professor, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Uh, where to begin? Um, <laughs> let's start here. For folks who may not understand how all this works, how normally would a process work for a new AP course to be online? Absolutely. So part of what happens in general, and I think it's actually important to discuss what happens specifically here, um, is that the College Board began by assembling a series of experts, high school teachers. These are high school teachers who have taught in the AP program more generally, so maybe AP U.S. History, AP lingu uh, Language and Literature. Mm -hmm. And part of what we did was think about what are some of the essential topics, what are some of the essential knowledges, EKs are what we call them in the framework, that students should have in an introductory African-American studies course at the collegiate level. So while these committees, they went from an advisory committee to what is now the development committee, which I co-chair. Mm -hmm. So while this was happening, the college board itself was reaching out to university professors who have taught either African-American studies, Africana, African diaspora, some version of a college level okay. introductory course to get all of those syllabi. And so what happened in February of 2022, which is an important moment in this historical brouhaha, if you want to call that, with the governor of Florida, is that he was responding to a document that was never going to be the course to begin with, if that makes sense. So what happened was, you, you know, you reach out to three African-American studies professors and you could get three different syllabi for introductory course. Okay. And so what happened was there were about 100 syllabi, and from those syllabi, all the courses were organized, I'm sorry, all the topics were organized into a big portfolio. And in that um, is where you got some of these topics that people are saying are no longer in the course, which in some cases is actually not true. But that list of all of those topics mm -hmm. went to a symposium in March of 2022, where people basically looked at the topics and said, these are must have topics, these are nice to have, and these are do not include. And so there has been an ongoing collection of data from experts at the collegiate and high school level who have been paring down this, this information. If, if you saw this packet that we had in February and March of, of 2022, those would probably be seven courses in African-American studies, You know, three of which would not be introductory because again, you're sort of bringing along all the different ways people might teach this course to narrow it down into a high school course. Okay. Now, listeners are saying, okay, that's a lot. We understand how that process works. But when you hear, and it wasn't just Governor DeSantis, it was a whole lot of folks. And quite frankly, let's be clear, too, folks taking the AP courses, tying it to CRT, which have nothing to do with each other, but that's a whole nother show because folks just do not want to educate themselves on what's real and what's not. Right. Uh, I just that's just me keeping it real and being fair and honest. So, Professor, yes. where are we now with this pilot program? Because based on the fact that politicians have made this 
a political war. Right. You have now you have other districts saying or other states saying, oh, we we shouldn't even take this. So it has created a brouhaha, as you put it. It, it has. And that's going to be the case. So in some of these cases, I think that we should just be clear that what Governor DeSantis said and what some of these people are following suit on is that black studies lacks educational value. And, and so that's sort of the, the tagline, which is to say that some of these examples of what should or should not be in the course, those are more so what I would call obfuscation station. That's not really what's at stake here. This, what's at stake here is that Governor DeSantis and some of his colleagues think that African-American studies lacks educational value. And you're seeing that in that state and other states in all type of ways. So it's my understanding that I think maybe one of the Dakotas has not even had not even reviewed the framework and was mm-hmm. rejecting it. Right. So that sort of goes to it. Now, Virginia, the governor wants to look at it. What expertise does the Virginia governor have on African-American studies to make that person reviewing the course? So how do you how do you all. I don't say I don't know if fix is the right word, but how do you all then make sure that correct narrative is being explained and now because there's a there's a headline now would ap african-american studies course violate north dakota north dakota law i don't know what law it could possibly violate (laughs) but i bet you it's because someone is getting misinformation that's just clear right i mean part of the laws any state that has sort of passed the law against crt or teaching the histories of enslavement or talking about power and oppression are setting themselves up to be able to reject the course like African-American studies, right? Because there's no way that you can teach African-American studies without talking about slavery, with talking about privilege, with talking about white supremacy. Because here in Georgia, we have this decisive concepts law, which prohibits teaching that one race considered itself superior to another or certain (laughs) issues. But, but but you see the problem here then, because you just said it, it sets up what this does is setting other states to say, oh, we have a law that that prohibits this. So we don't need to take it. We don't need to include it. And then we that's, don't need, go ahead. No, sorry. We don't need to clear it and we don't want to include it. And I think that part of what you're which part of what you're getting at and part of what I do think that the College Board was at least somewhat, somewhat mindful of is that there would be states in which this curriculum could and should be delivered that would have to think about and navigate some of these laws um, that were designed not to have courses like this. And so that's why when the College Board released the statement, part of what it said was, you know, they took out terms like systemic oppression or whatever the case was. This wasn't kowtowing necessarily to DeSantis, but this was, I think, being mindful and rightfully so of the political realities of which people teach and could be fired because we heard this at our summer institute from some of the teachers too. Well, what's your response to some that say, well, are you saying it's just a coincidence that what you all had uh, voted or agreed to eliminate or not include just so happened to fall in the same, these are the same buckets that folks like Ron DeSantis opposed? Yeah, I would I would say two, I would say two things to that. Um, somehow, again, DeSantis used a version of the course that was never going to be the course. So that, but that, that point notwithstanding, um, I do think that the timeline does actually seem to support what the College Board has said about when and how things happen. So that's 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 part one of it. But part two of it too is, quite frankly, that the some of the topics were never in the pilot, right? So this is actually an important. This is an important. Was Black point. Lives Matter in the pilot? Anything? It was in the it was in the pilot, but optional. So the unit. So there's a unit in the pilot right now, 4.24, Black Lives Matter, um, prison abolition, STEM, and one other topic, the new Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. Those were all in one week. And so teachers in the pilot would choose one of those four topics. So no student would be doing those four topics at the time. And I do think an easy fix, not an easy fix, but something that the College Board can do going forward is actually restore those options into the framework so that teachers could be able to choose, depending on the student interests and other issues, one of those topics. What's a lesson here you think that is learned that if you would, if you could be so candid about that, the board should learn from this? Or- yeah, I, I, think that the, I think that the college board, one valuable lesson to learn is that you have to not even um, overly invest and what a place like Florida, a place like Texas might actually do around 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 these issues and, and topics, because at the end of the day, 
those are places where they have decided that black lives maybe not matter, black education maybe doesn't matter. And you will see the things follow suit. So it's DEI, now in Florida's gender studies, Texas is doing DEI in terms of the university and collegiate level. So I think we have to stay focused on what this course actually is intended to do, which is to do something that American education has not done, which is centralized black experiences, black knowledge and black culture. How optimistic are you that, well, look, if other states seem to follow suit, how optimistic are you that this will eventually become an AP course? Oh, it's going to expand to the schools in the fall. I think that that is going to happen. I do think in 2024, as it is scheduled, it will launch. The unfortunate part will be that some students in some of these states will not have access to this information and to this education. Hmm. Dr. Robert Patterson, professor of African-American studies at Georgetown University. He also serves as co-chair of the Committee of Professors and Teachers who developed the AP African-American Studies course. I appreciate you taking the time and answering the questions. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The city of Atlanta is working to document historic LGBTQ plus places and spaces throughout the city. It's a collaborative effort through the city of Atlanta's Department of City Planning Historic Preservation Studio and Historic Atlanta. And they're going to create what they call a historic context statement. The document can be used to identify and locate places that matter to Atlanta's LGBTQ LGBTQ plus community. In an effort to get all this, they have to get some feedback, right? So the city of Atlanta's Department of City Planning, Historic Preservation Studio and Historic Atlanta. Wow. They're hosting an informational session at the Atlanta University Center at the Robert W. Woodruff Library. Join me now to talk more about this is Anthony Knight, the city of Atlanta's first African-American heritage coordinator. Anthony, welcome. Thank you, Rose. Good afternoon. You are the first so what in the world is a African-American heritage coordinator for the city of Atlanta do in his first month on the job? Well, <clears throat> what the position is, is it's the result actually of a study, part of a study that concluded in 2020 called the Future Places Project. Mm-hmm. And your listeners can learn more about the comprehensive study at atlfutureplaces.com. Um, it was the first comprehensive assessment of Atlanta's historic preservation-related activities since about the mid-1980s. And one of the recommendations that came out of the study was to create the position that I now hold. Mm -hmm. Uh, The position was designed to focus on engagement with and outreach to the African-American community. And it was also designed to pursue grants that focused on African-American or that focus on African-American-related preservation activities, and to coordinate and partner with uh, local nonprofits and businesses to bring awareness to historic preservation as it relates to Black places and spaces here in the city of Atlanta. So when we talk about this historic context statement, define that Mm -hmm. for our listeners. Well, it's a fancy term that I (laughs) had to learn myself, quite honestly, Um, but it's essentially a fancy term uh, that is basically a framework, at least the way I understand it, it's a framework within which one can bring together information about historic properties or sites that share a common theme, place, and or time. A context statement can also provide uh, the basis for evaluating the significance or integrity uh, of properties and sites. And it also helps to define how broad or narrow Mm. the focus should be. And so since you're focusing on the LGBTQ plus community, you all are going to have this informational session tomorrow at the AU Center at at the library there. What do you you think will come out of this? Well, I'll just backtrack a little. We've done a number of these kinds of sessions uh, throughout the past year or so. So we've done them at uh, MPU meetings. We've done them at uh, community groups. And one of the things that, uh, since I came on board, I was very interested in in ensuring that we do is do these kinds of information sessions uh, at Black spaces. And the AUC, obviously, is probably in Atlanta the most um, well-known Black space in terms of education. 
And also, you all looking for the importance that you capture the voices of the young Black LGBTQ plus community as well. Absolutely, because the uh, context statement project is is kind of using as its as its timeline the mid nineteen fifties to the present. Um, and so, you know, my thinking is, and I know our team's thinking is that you know, you have to also include current students mm-hmm. uh, and the spaces that I may have known about or others of my generation may have known about are clearly not the spaces that young folk mm-hmm. um, know about and make, you know, relevant to them today. And a listener may be saying, well, Mr. Knight, once you get this feedback and then again, you have this this, this historic context statement, then how, do you, how does a city like Atlanta then grow upon that? What's next? Is this sounds like it's phase one here? It, that's exactly a, a good way of looking at it because out of this context statement, um, we will become knowledgeable about spaces and places that perhaps we were not knowledgeable about before. Um, and so, when you have that kind of information, you can then go back and say, "Okay, let's look at the information we have. What are the sites? What are the spaces that we need to really consider?" designating as Mm -hmm. um, either locally or perhaps even nationally um, through the National Register of Historic Places. And with this new title for you, because you're the first in this position where you're the first in anything, you get to maybe set the bar in a sense. But are there is there any other city that has a a, a position like this that you're looking to say, hey, how are you all doing things? Are you just really you got a blank slate and you're really creating the template as it go as you go? It's the latter. Um, there could be other positions like this. I don't know of them. Um, but uh, yeah, we're kind of creating this uh, position, creating this uh, work as we go along. What's next after the LGBTQ plus community? If you're talking about being Atlanta's African-American heritage coordinator, there's a whole lot of buckets that fall under that. Well, there are a lot of places in in. in you know, spaces here in Atlanta that are relevant to African-American history and culture. And so what I would love to do is to create uh, a program that we can help young people, particularly young Black people, learn about historic preservation. I don't think that's something that a lot of young Black people even consider uh, to maybe think about that as a career, but also to help them see their neighborhoods mm-hmm. and their communities in a different way, perhaps. Uh, there are lots of buildings and, and locations that I'm even learning about uh, mm-hmm. that I think would be worthy of designation and certainly acknowledging and to acknowledge them uh, through the city's designation uh, process. I have a listener who wants to know, can anyone attend this an informational session at the AU Center tomorrow? Absolutely. We're, you know, at the AU Center, we're hoping that a lot of folks from the AU Center come out. But this program, like all of our events, are open to the, is open to the public. When you think Absolutely. when you you think about the importance of these cross generations here, and Anthony, you think back to your generation, and there was nothing like this that I know of, particularly here in Atlanta. I think you're from the New York area, which y'all may have had a little bit more of of a community there. But in terms of uh, for African American spaces, you know, you think back to your generation when you were a youngin. <laughs> you think now? What do you mean when when I was? I still am. Okay, you're youngin. Now, you know, I know you, Anthony. By the way, Anthony used to work with our StoryCorps team here. So I was being, I apologize. I shouldn't have called you. I, let me rephrase that. When you think back to another generation and looking for those LGBTQ plus spaces and you think now where we are in 2023, it's it's, it's been a journey. But you know, Rose, like so much, and you, your, your guest before, um, Professor uh, Patterson, um, certainly understands this. There's been a long history in this country of not acknowledging the contributions of um, Black people in general. Mm -hmm. And I have to remind folks all the time because we, I think, want to believe that the LGBTQ community is different, um, but it's not. There's been a lot of neglect within the LGBTQ community regarding Black places and spaces. And it was true when I lived in New York, when I'm well, from New York, but when I lived there mm-hmm. in the mid and late 80s, and I'm sure it was true here in Atlanta. Um, and so, you know, not only this project, but other work that we do will hopefully help to uh, re- uh, 
kind of rectify some of that. We won't solve everything, but hopefully we can certainly make a dent in acknowledging the contributions in this case of LGBTQ Black folk, but in general of the Black community in Atlanta as a whole. And then you could take that even further if you say, listen, if you need, to, if you think you don't understand or you just don't know the contributions of LGBTQ plus folks in American history, then you probably didn't need to take a class. Correct. <laughs> and, I, and I have to say, you know, this this project obviously is one that's mostly spearheaded by the city, but our partner Historic Atlanta has been instrumental and critical, a critical partner in this whole process. And for tomorrow's event, I would be remiss to not mention the Robert Woodruff Library. They, from the very beginning when I reached out to them, jumped on board and they are one of the strongest partners I have ever worked with. All right, Anthony Knight, the city of Atlanta's first African-American heritage coordinator. Anthony, as always, good conversation. Good seeing you. Thanks so much, Rose. You too. Have a great afternoon. You too. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel. Our supervising producer is Tiffany Griffith. Our engineer is Sander, Sawyer Vanderworth. Now, some of you asked, where's Kevin? Kevin is still with us. Y'all love Kevin. Somebody sent me an email and said, Rose, why'd you get rid I did not get rid of Kevin. Kevin is still with us. He's our in a, our podcast production. But Sawyer's a cool dude. I don't know if he rides a bike, but he's cool. Ooh, well, yeah, they... Y'all, ooh, y'all send me them emails. Listen, send me your email if you have thoughts on any of today's programs. Rose at WABE.org, as y'all always do. And, of course, if you missed any of today's program, it's online at WABE.org slash Closer Look. And catch the rebroadcast at 7 p.m. <laughs> Why did I get rid of Kevin? I did not get rid of Kevin. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.